0: Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother Richard has reminded us, last week we left our study in the middle of Christ's discourse with Nicodemus. We had followed through the discourse down to verse 6, where we had seen how the Lord Jesus Christ impressed upon Nicodemus the need for a person to be begotten from above and to finally be born of the Spirit before he can enter into the kingdom of God. In verse 6, the Lord sets forth the principle, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Back in the book of Genesis chapter 1, we have the principle clearly established, that like begets like. In the first of Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 15, The Apostle shows us that it is impossible for flesh and blood to inherit the kingdom of God because he says in that verse, now this I say brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. The very reason the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is something that will last forever and flesh and blood is mortal and corruptible. So something that's just going to last for a little while and disappear cannot inherit something that's going to last forever. Hence the need to be born of the Spirit before one can inherit the kingdom of God. We learn also from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 that flesh and spirit in the moral field are at enmity one with the other verse 16 the apostle says this I say then walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would and so there we see that flesh and spirit in the moral sphere are diametrically opposed one to the other there is enmity between the two and hence the need to be born of the spirit in a moral sense before that character can be developed that will be immortalised with spirit nature at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ Now in verse 7 as the Lord had expounded these principles to Nicodemus He says marvel not that I said unto thee ye must be born again. The phrase marvel not means don't be amazed or don't be astonished that I have said unto thee ye must be begotten from above. And so we see from the very words of the Lord there in verse 7 that Nicodemus was absolutely taken back by the things that he had been told. As we indicated last time Nicodemus as a prominent Jewish man prominent in religious affairs he was a man who would have put great trust in the fact that he was born of the family of Abraham born into the chosen nation and that's where his trust and his confidence lay but now Nicodemus is told that that counts for nothing and he's got to be begotten from above and start all over again as it were and Nicodemus is completely taken back and he's astonished by the things he hears and so the Lord exhorts him in verse 7 not to be not to marvel not to be amazed because he said unto him ye must be begotten from above and then in verse 8 he says the wind bloweth where it listeth and thou hearest the sound thereof but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth so is everyone that is born of the spirit now on the Sheet that was given to you as you entered we have reproduced a little quotation from Brother Thomas's writing in Faith in the Last Days where Brother Thomas gives us a his translation of this verse and a few brief comments upon it and there in relation to John 3 verse 8 Brother Thomas writes or well, he renders the verse as follows The Spirit breathes where he pleases and thou hearest his voice, but thou knowest not whence he comes, and whither he leads. In like manner is every one being begotten of the Spirit. And then he comments upon that. Thus are men begotten from above, by the voice of the Spirit, breathing forth the truth, when, where, and how he pleases. In some places he will not breathe it at all, and on occasion positively forbids its utterance and he refers us there to Acts chapter 16 and verse 7 reading from verse 6 we read this concerning the preaching work of the uh, apostles on this particular occasion now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia after they were come to Mysia they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And so, Brother Thomas refers us to this quotation to show that here was a case, or here were two cases, where the Spirit refused to breathe forth. And now it emphasizes the, the principle that the Spirit, um, as he says, breathes where he pleases. Now as we look at the verse as it stands in the AV we find that Brother Thomas' translation has much in its favour. The word wind, the word pneuma rendered spirit quite extensively uh, through the New Testament. It is a word that refers to spirit as well as to wind. The word bloweth, the word pneuma and it means to breathe hard we find that word hero in a compound form in Second of Timothy chapter three and verse sixteen. A well known verse. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that word inspiration of God in the Greek is a single word. And it's a compound of this word of the word theos, which means God. And this word, newo, which means to breathe hard. and so, just as, so, so the apostle in that place says that all scripture is breathed forth from God. And so you see, as Brother Thomas points out, it's the spirit that breathes by the, through the preaching of the truth. Where it says, where it listeth, the word listeth means to, 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 to choose, or, or where it pleases, as Brother Thomas rendered it. It breathes where it pleases or where it chooses. And thou hearest the sound, Brother Thomas renders that voice. And that is actually a more correct rendering of that verse, of that word. The word does apply particularly to a voice. And so we see how Brother Thomas' uh, his, his rendering here has much in its favour. When we come down to the word goeth, thou cannot tell whence it cometh. And whither it goeth, Father Thomas renders that word whither he leads. Now, actually, although the word goeth there is translated many, many times through the New Testament as goeth, it's translated depart and all sorts of ways like that. Nevertheless, we find that the lexicons point out that the literal meaning of that word is to lead under. It's super go or some such word it means to lead under that's the literal meaning of the word and brother Thomas uh, follows that literal meaning here in his translation so he shows how there is a coming of the spirit and how the spirit leads and so that's how brother Thomas translates that particular verse the spirit breathes where he pleases And and, and, and in this statement he is showing Nicodemus that the spirit is a free agent. The spirit will work when, where and how it pleases. The spirit is not bound by national barriers. He's not bound to work through appointed orders of men such as high priests or priesthoods He's not limited to to, 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 to breathe forth upon the Jewish nation alone but the Spirit is a free agent and it will breathe where he pleases. And then he says to Nicodemus and thou hearest the voice thereof. Nicodemus had heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He may have heard the preaching of John the Baptist. He says but you canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth or whither it leads so is everyone that is born of the spirit just as the word spirit can mean wind also the natural wind seems to uh, uh, present us with a very graphic illustration of what the Lord is getting at here you see we we can witness a gust of wind We don't know where it comes from, we don't know where it's going but we see the effects of it as it it, it lifts the leaves and swirls them around as it sways the branches of the trees and so forth and the person can look on and can see the effects of that wind but they don't know where the wind's coming from and they don't know where it's leading to and so it is as a person and we're talking of an unenlightened person here witnessing the truth into the life of someone else he can see a change in that person he sees a complete change of thinking in that person he sees a change in way of life in that person he he doesn't know what's happening what's happened to the man what's entered into him where's he going where's it leading him and he can't tell because he himself cannot understand the workings of that spirit He cannot appreciate the things that that spirit is teaching. And so it is, says the Lord, with everyone that is born of the spirit. You don't know where that spirit came from. You don't know how it changes that person. You don't know where it's leading that person to. But you see, because all of those things are spiritually discerned. Only a spiritually minded person can discern the working of the spirit in another person. And so the Lord is here explaining to Nicodemus the way in which the Spirit works. It's a free agent. It can breathe wherever it pleases. It enters into the mind of people. It changes those people. It changes their thinking. It leads them off in in an entirely different course of life. And the onlooker, cannot explain it at all he, he, he's at a loss to know what ended into the person and where it is leading the person and so it is he says with everyone that he's born of the spirit it's not a thing you can understand on natural fleshly principles because he's worked out on a higher plane altogether than the principles of the, the natural that that that, that 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 we can look at and calculate by natural methods and so as the Lord explains these things to Nicodemus we find in Nicodemus find in verse 9 that Nicodemus is still completely unable to understand what the Lord is really trying to tell him and he says how can these things be how can these things be he finds it very hard to accept that that his whole past life, his whole concept of religion had been wrong. And he's got to make an entirely new beginning by being begotten from above. Now in verse 10 and in verse 11 I believe that the Lord rebukes Nicodemus. Really he gives him quite a stern rebuke he says in verse 10 that Jesus answered and said unto him art thou a master in Israel and knowest not these things and as our brother Richard reminded us last time we looked at the dialogue rendering of that verse which is supported by other translations that renders it in this way art thou the teacher of Israel and knowest not these things Nicodemus was a man of no mean standing. He was a man of considerable prominence and influence in Jerusalem. Possibly he would have been equivalent perhaps to a professor at the university. And the Lord Jesus Christ is rebuking him. He said, look, are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? obviously the Lord is showing Nicodemus that he should have understood the principles that the Lord is teaching him here why should Nicodemus have understood those things? because you know the very things that the Lord is teaching were taught in the pages of the Old Testament that's why Nicodemus should have known them he should have understood these things you see we go back to the book of Deuteronomy and back as far as the 30th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy we find really the principle of being born again, being begotten from above is set forth in that chapter in the um, in the 6th verse of Deuteronomy chapter thirty speaking of course of the, the future time you see, this verse has never yet been fulfilled but it will be fulfilled in the future and Yahweh thy Elohim will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love Yahweh thy, thy Elohim with all thy heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live and you see here Moses is foretelling a time when Yahweh would accomplish a work with his people he would accomplish the circumcision of their heart so that they would have a new heart and how with that heart they would love Yahweh with all their heart, with all their soul something that Israel had never done in the past but it speaks of the time when Yahweh will regenerate that nation of Israel and they will be begotten from above and will then yield the fruits of the Spirit that Yahweh has sought to find in them. Now the prophet Ezekiel, in his 36th chapter, likewise speaks of the time when Israel will be restored to divine favour. And in verse 25 of this chapter, a chapter that we know so well, speaking of the future restoration of Israel, to their, both to their land and to divine favour. Verse twenty five says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. You see, and in those verses, the prophet Ezekiel is foretelling a time when Israel would be born again, when they would be begotten from above, when they would be cleansed, when they would be born of the water, when they would have a new heart, when they would walk in Yahweh's ways and that's the time that they would be restored to their land and that's the time they would be restored to divine favour and it's a prophecy of Israel when they will be begotten from above and born again the very principle that that, um, the Lord was trying to emphasise upon the mind of Nicodemus but he didn't understand he should have understood because there it was foretold in the writings Of the law and the prophets in which Nicodemus placed so much confidence and so much trust. But you see, there's no doubt that Nicodemus would have known his scriptures. You know, if we put a man like Nicodemus alongside of ourselves in a Bible quiz, where it was general knowledge of, of Bible history and Bible matters, there's probably little doubt that Nicodemus would make us look quite silly. But you know, he was ignorant. He was ignorant of the very foundation principle of God's manifestation. And what a warning for us, brethren and sisters. What a warning for us. We could know the scriptures, but we could be ignorant of the very principles of God's manifestation, just as Nicodemus was. And so you see, verse 10 is quite a rebuke for Nicodemus. The Lord is telling him that he should have known and understood the things that the Lord was teaching him. And although he was a highly respected man in Israel, the teacher of Israel, he did not understand the basic first principle of God manifestation, that he had to be begotten from above, that he had to undergo a moral regeneration, that he might be born of the Spirit in the future time and in verse 11 the Lord says verily verily I say unto thee we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness notice the change in the uh, tense there verily I say unto thee we speak what we do know and testify what we have seen why does the Lord change the tense like that in that verse I believe the Lord here is taking Nicodemus back to Nicodemus his own statement in verse 2 you see in verse 2 we read the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him Rabbi we know that thou art a teacher come from God For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And there by the very confession of Nicodemus his own mouth, he recognised there that in the teaching of the Lord Jesus accompanied by the miracles he performed he could see that the Lord was not working alone. He could see by sheer logic that no man could do those things except God be with him. And I believe that the Lord is taking Nicodemus right back to that statement. He said, you believe I'm a teacher come from God. I said, and we're teaching you things that we know and we have seen, but ye receive not our witness. Where he says, ye receive not our witness, not just a reference to Nicodemus personally, Because you see, Nicodemus came to the Lord in verse 2 and said, We know. And so Nicodemus is telling him that the Pharisees themselves, although they rejected the Lord, they knew that he was a teacher come from God because sheer weight of logic told them that it must be so. No man can heal the sick, no man can raise the dead unless God be with him. And so they knew that he was a teacher come from God but they did not receive his witness. And so you see, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father were combined, united as one. You see, God was bearing the Lord Jesus' witness by the mighty works that were being done. God was also bearing witness through the testimony of the word of the prophets. And so the Lord wasn't alone he wasn't saying the things that he said of himself those things didn't have their origin in him they had their origin in his father and he and his father were working together in harmony and in unity and those that had eyes to see could see that God was with him and even though they could see that they received not his witness and the word "received" there you received not our witness it indicates really a refusal to accept. They didn't want to receive his witness because of the implications of what accepting the Lord Jesus Christ would have had in their lives. And so you see, in verses 10 and 11, the Lord is really quite sharply rebuking Nicodemus. You know, you imagine the position if you were a, a prominent teacher, a professor perhaps at the university. And here you are talking to what you consider an uneducated Galilean. And he's telling you, look, you haven't even learnt the ABC of things yet. What a tremendous humiliation for that man. How few there were in Israel that were prepared to humble themselves to accept words like that. But as we showed last time, Nicodemus did humble himself he did accept that rebuke as humbling and as humiliating as it was and he did uh, uh, come to ultimately be begotten from above and to be born again and so then after um, the rebuke of verse 11 the Lord said in verse 12 if I have told you earthly things and ye believe not how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things now the earthly things that he had taught would possibly relate to the things that he had been teaching in the city of Jerusalem through the, through the uh, uh, days of that feast he had doubtless been teaching the people the things concerning the kingdom of God because so often we read associated with the preaching work of the Lord that those were the things that he taught He'd probably been teaching the things concerning the kingdom of God. And they, they didn't believe. The Pharisees didn't believe. They wouldn't receive his teaching. And he says, Now look, if I have told you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The heavenly things here are the things concerning God's manifestation which is the underlying theme that runs right through these chapters of the Gospel of John and so Nicodemus was completely unable to, to, to grasp the things the Lord was teaching at that time because his mind was so set upon the, uh, upon the traditional Jewish beliefs. now verse 13 a verse that sometimes appears difficult but I don't believe that really there is any difficulty in the verse when we take it in its context. The verse says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now as we approach this verse, I believe we need to to bear firmly in mind that the context of this chapter is begettled from above being born of the water and then ultimately being born of the Spirit. The context of the chapter is the subject of God's manifestation. Now, he says, no man has ascended up to heaven. He's just told Nicodemus in verse 12, that if I've told you of earthly things, things pertaining to the earth, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? You see, how can a man's mind ascend to heavenly things? You see, and the Lord says in verse thirteen that no man hath ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. Had the Lord Jesus Christ at that stage ascended up to heaven? Had he come down from heaven? yes we know that he'd come down from heaven the Lord tells us in many places through the gospel of John that he had come He had come from above but how had he come down from heaven? he'd come down from heaven brethren and sisters because he'd been begotten from above that's the only way he'd come down from heaven as he stood there in that room or tent or whatever it was on that night speaking to Nicodemus as the son of man was there in the presence of Nicodemus the only way he had come down from heaven was that he had been begotten from above in the case of the Lord he had been begotten physically and mentally but he had been begotten from above and because he had been begotten from above his mind had ascended above earthly things he had ascended up to heaven to comprehend heavenly things you see and he finishes that verse and he says even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Even the Son of Man which is in heaven. I believe the Lord here is showing Nicodemus that his whole life, his whole purpose, his whole thinking that everything that he thought and did was related to heaven and not to the earth because he had been begotten from above if you let's look at one or two quotations firstly John chapter 8 and verse 23 where the Lord is again speaking to the Pharisees and he said unto them ye are from beneath I am from above ye are of this world I am not of this world You see how the Lord is showing that the Pharisees and the the, the Jews of that day, they were from beneath because they were begotten of the flesh. He says, ye are of this world because their whole life was related to things in this world. He says, I am not of this world. The Lord was in the world. The Lord was there in in, in Jerusalem at that very time. But he says, I am not of this world because everything about him his life, his his works, his thoughts, his speech everything about him was related to heaven and not to the earth because he was a man who had been begotten from above you see we take this principle into the epistles to the epistle of the Philippians and at chapter 3 and verse 20 where the apostle Paul speaking of us He says in verse 20, For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking about citizenship. It is in heaven, not upon the earth. You see, so just as the Lord's life was not related to things of the earth, the things that surround us, neither should our lives be. But our lives should be related to the things in heaven, the things from above, from whence we have been begotten by the power of Yahweh's word. That's over the page in the Epistle to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, If then ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. You see, but how can we offend such thinking as that? It's impossible unless first the Spirit comes down from heaven and breathes into our minds. And I mean that in the sense that Brother Thomas means it there, that we receive the preaching of the truth. Unless we receive the word of truth, unless we're begotten by the word of truth, begotten from above, unless we're reborn morally in preparation for a rebirth spiritually, how can we ascend to those things? We can't. So just as the Lord says there, no man can ascend to, no man can ascend up to heaven except he that came down from heaven.
1: In other words,
0: I believe he's saying that you cannot ascend to heavenly things unless you're begotten from above. As he says back there in verse 3, except a man begotten from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't understand spiritual things unless he is begotten from above. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ had been begotten from above, in that sense he'd come down from heaven, He had ascended to heaven because that begettle from above had elevated his thinking to spiritual planes. And his whole life now was related to heavenly things and not to things upon the earth. You know, in the 21st chapter of the Apocalypse we're given a glorious vision of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. A glorious vision of the saints in glory under the vision of the new Jerusalem and in verse 10 of that chapter we read and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God and that's a vision of the glorified bride of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future age. Descending out of heaven from God, and how can we, brethren and sisters, be spoken of as descending out of heaven from God in the future age? It's because God, by the power of His Word, has begotten us again. He's begotten us from above. We've been completely regenerated morally, and also, and we have been at that stage, been born of the Spirit physically and all that has come from above the begetting the growth and the development and the final clothing of spirit nature it has all come from heaven and in that sense the bride of Christ will have come down from heaven although they themselves will never have been there but they will in that sense have come down from heaven because through the days of their probation from their birth of the water to to, to the time when the Lord returns They've lived lives on earth that are related to heavenly things and not to the things of this world around us. I believe that that's the teaching of verse 13 there. And when it's understood in harmony with the context uh, of this chapter, I believe it can be quite easily understood in that way. And so in verse 14 the Lord develops his argument of rebirth a little further. He shows Nicodemus uh, uh, certain things out of the law concerning the Messiah and of course things that must be related to the lives of every one of us. He says in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up what does he mean even so must the Son of Man be lifted up we don't, if we turn over to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John we're shown quite plainly what that aspect of lifting up refers to John chapter 12 verses 32 to 34 the Lord says and I if I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me this he said signifying what death he should die the people answered him we have heard out of the law that Christ abided forever how sayest thou the son of man must be lifted up who is this son of man We learn two things from those verses. We learn first of all from verse 33 that the aspect of lifting up refers to what manner of death he would die and therefore it refers to his crucifixion. And from verse 34 we learn that the Jewish people of that time believed that the Christ or the Messiah when he came would live forever. They didn't understand that he would have to die they thought he would live forever, live forever. but see, as, as, most, as the Lord now in verse 14 of chapter 3 draws Nicodemus's attention to the fact that he must die we find that um, the Lord is, un, is, is uh, hitting at another fundamental belief of the Jewish people of that time You know, as we analyse this discourse, we see the Lord dealt with Nicodemus in a masterly way. I believe right from verse 1 right down to verse 21. Some believe that from verses 16 to 21 is an addition that was put in by the Apostle John at the time of his writing and wasn't actually spoken of by the Lord. I believe that the subject of those verses is in complete harmony with the rest of the chapter the previous part of the chapter I don't think it really makes any difference whether we look at them as the words of John or the words of the Lord we find there is one consistent theme running from verse 1 or verse uh, 3 of this chapter down to verse 21 and that's the theme of begotten from above and rebirth and the Lord never deviates from that, that, that theme and yet you know as he deals with that theme as he goes through The Lord hits at four fundamental foundation stones of Jewish belief at that time. Number one, the Jews put confidence in their birth into the family of Abraham. Number two, they believed that the Messiah would live forever. They didn't believe the Messiah would die. Uh, Number three, they believed that salvation was by works. And number four, they believed that when Christ came, at his first advent he would judge the world now the Lord never deviates from his theme of begettle from above but he deals with each of those things in turn the Lord has dealt with the aspects of flesh descent and begettle from above he now moves into the the region of the fact that the Messiah would first have to die as a sacrifice and so he introduces his death there in verse 14 and to teach him the principles of his death he took Nicodemus right to the writings of Moses the very writings in which Nicodemus would have placed much trust and much confidence and he says as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and here of course is a reference back to Numbers chapter 21 verses 4-9 to Where we read in those few verses of the, uh, events to which the Lord is referring. In, uh, in verses four and five, we read of how Israel were journeying through the wilderness, how they murmured, their souls became discouraged, how they murmured against God, and they murmured against Moses, they complained about the manna that they had to eat, verse 6 as a punishment for that sin Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people they bit the people much people of Israel died verse 7 we read therefore the people came to Moses and they confessed that we have sinned for we've spoken against Yahweh and they beseech Moses that he might speak to Yahweh that he might take away the serpents but Yahweh didn't take away the serpents Yahweh commanded Moses to make a serpent of brass and set it upon a pole. As we read in verse 9, And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. You know, Brother Robert Roberts, some very thought-provoking statements on this, in a, just a very brief comment he makes on it in the uh, visible hand of God page 183 I'll just quote from about the middle of the page there Yahweh said unto Moses make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live here was merciful kindness in the midst of rigour. The rigour of the serpent visitation had brought them to their knees. It had broken the stout heart and that waywardness which springs from that mere enjoyment of the created things which leaves the Creator out of account. In this frame of mind men are unthankful in the possession of privilege and full of murmur and insubordination when trouble comes. And so on he writes, but you think, notice the way how brother thomas brother Roberts notices that in Yahweh's dealings with that situation there was both goodness and severity. There was severity in the punishment that Yahweh brought upon them because of their sins, in the fiery serpents biting them that many of the people died. but as brother Robert says, by that severity, the severity of that punishment brought them to their knees it broke their stout heart and that waywardness that sprang from the enjoyment of things without the acknowledgement of Yahweh and you see that's the way that Yahweh deals with his people he's got to break the stout heart he's got to humble the people first and then when the people were humbled Recognizing the plight that they were in and seeking to him that something might be done about it, Yahweh provided the way. Now, just, uh, just uh, over the page here, Brother Robert says, referring to the fact that people had to look upon that serpent of brass, he says, Here was healing dispensed to the obedience that came from faith. If Moses has had no faith, he would have not have made, made a thing in which a merely natural man would have said there was no use. If the children of Israel had, had had no faith, they would have not have taken the trouble to come near the serpent-mounted pole in which there could be no virtue by any natural principle. You see, think how Yahweh instituted a method here. It called for nothing in the way of human ability. Didn't ask for anything very great to be done it merely called for faith you see you, you imagine the situation if you took along to a hospital today a person that had been bitten by a snake and you said to the doctor well look just, just make a serpent, a snake out of brass and stick it on a pole and get the fellow to look at it and you'd be healed he'd think you're a madman and for, right, you, you would be too under this particular set of circumstances but you see the whole thing was so utterly ridiculous Really, upon the natural point of view. But Yahweh asked it to be done. And Yahweh instituted that those that had faith in his word would be healed. And so you see, there was the goodness of Yahweh in providing a method that they could be healed, but a method that called for faith. In the complete absence of any human ability or any great human achievement, there was nothing Nothing that the person could boast about in in what they'd done. They'd merely looked upon that which Yahweh had provided in faith and they were healed. And you know, in these things there is a parable of salvation as it is in Christ. You know, in that very set of circumstances in the wilderness, there the serpents were biting them and they were dying. And Moses was told to make a serpent out of brass and put it on a pole and the people were asked to look upon that serpent in faith that they might be healed. And when they looked toward that pole the thing that they saw there exhibited crucified upon that pole was the very thing that was causing their death. The very thing that was causing their death the serpent that Yahweh had sent among them. Well, of course, the serpents were only sent among them because of their own sin. And we know that the serpent is a symbol of sin in the flesh anyway. And when we relate this, oh you see, you see, you see as they looked upon that serpent, they saw there the symbol of what was killing them. But you know, it wasn't, it wasn't one of the serpents that had actually bit them that was put up there. It wasn't a, a, a live serpent with the power of biting them that was put up there it was a serpent of brass that was put up there what a beautiful figure of the Lord Jesus Christ you know that brass was taken out of the earth just as Adam was made out of the earth but you see that brass was put through a refining and a purifying process before it got up on that pole and there up on that pole, it represented what was in actual fact a harmless serpent. It wasn't a serpent that had ever bitten anyone. It, was, it was represented that that was biting them. But it had never actually bitten anyone itself. Because it was purified. And you know, when we relate these things to salvation as it is in Christ, we see the Lord says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we've seen he was speaking of his crucifixion. And there as we, by the eye of faith now, look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, impaled upon that stake, what do we see there being put to death? We see there on that stake, put to death, the very thing that's killing us, sin in the flesh. But you know, that flesh that was crucified on that stake was flesh that had never bitten anyone. It was flesh that had been cleansed and purified through the trials of life and the operation of Yahweh's word. That flesh was subdued, it was put to death so that sin in the flesh, in his flesh, never inflicted any bite, never inflicted any wound because he was purified by the operation of Yahweh's word and so that flesh that was put to death on that stake and we can look upon that and we can acknowledge the righteousness of God in demanding the death of that flesh in which sin was a principle Yahweh was righteous in condemning that flesh to death and we acknowledge it and we can identify ourselves with that one who was in that way put to death when we come back to the third chapter of the gospel of John we see as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever Believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. You take it back to the, to the, those experiences in the wilderness. Those people who had been bitten by those serpents were in a, they, they were going to die. They were in a state where they were going to perish. But if they looked upon that serpent, that brazen serpent upon the pole if they had the faith to obey the commands of Yahweh and to look upon that serpent then they could be healed. and notice there in these verses the way the Lord is showing that that was a parable of salvation through the Son of Man who must be crucified as a saviour so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life And so the Lord is expounding to Nicodemus the reasons why the Messiah must die. Because flesh is at enmity with God. Back in the Garden of Eden, God condemned sinful flesh to death. And the Messiah was one who bore sinful flesh, although he never sinned. And that flesh would have to be put to death likewise. You see, and really what the Lord here is He's explaining to Nicodemus the things the Jews didn't understand. Christ crucified became a stumbling block to the Jews but he's explaining to Nicodemus the reasons why he would have to die. But you know, begettel from above demands the death of the old man in anyone. You see, salvation depended upon the death of the flesh in a righteous man. But individual salvation depends upon the death of the old man in every individual. You know, we saw from Galatians 5 and verse 7 how the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh because the two are at enmity one with the other. You see, and begetful from above, if that new man is going to grow and develop, it means that the old man has got to be put to death. The two cannot live peacefully and harmoniously together. You know, if we're feeding and nourishing the old man, if we're giving the old man of the flesh all the things that he wants, then it means that the new man is withering and dying. If we're giving the new man everything he needs for his full development and growth, it means that the old man has got to be starved to death the old man has got to be put to death because the two cannot live harmoniously together and the Lord is showing in verse 14 here, He's showing Nicodemus the very manner of the life that he lived he would live because he was begotten from above because his whole life was related to heavenly things it would terminate in the son of man being put to death he had to be put to death that others might be saved But others that come to identify with him, likewise, have to be put to death. And we acknowledge that when we're baptized. We acknowledge that God is righteous for condemning sinful flesh to death. We acknowledge that when we're baptized. But do we, brethren and sisters, acknowledge it in the life that we live afterwards? Do we? Give everything we can to nourish and build and strengthen the new man at the expense of the old man of the flesh? Or do we want to give the old man of the flesh everything that he wants and expect to be in the kingdom of God as well? You see, the Lord is showing here that it can't be done. Be gentle from above. If that new man is going to grow and develop, demand that the old man has to be put to death. He has to be put aside. He has to be put to death. Now in verse 15 here he says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see now in the latter part of that verse we have two destinies set before us. He says should not perish. That word perish means just that. Bollinger commenting upon the word says it means to destroy to be utterly and finally ruined and destroyed, to be lost, brought to naught, put to death. So perish is probably quite a good word in the English to explain that that, that word. So a person will either perish or gain eternal life, which speaks of immortality. There's two destinies, destruction or immortality. Now it takes us back to the garden of Eden where there were two trees in that garden. There was a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil that brought death. There was life and death. There was destruction or or immortal life. And likewise here the Lord shows in verse 15 that, that there are two destinies attainable. Destruction or immortal life. You know the natural birth, birth of the flesh, is related to death. And God is righteous for condemning sinful flesh to death. But in the begettle from above, the new man is related to life. And you know, and the thing that works that change from the one destiny to the other, the Lord says, is belief. Whosoever believeth should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the thing that will make the difference between a person perishing and a person having eternal life. Now that word belief, believeth there, the word in the Greek, pistia, very closely related to the word pistis or faith. Bollinger says it means to be persuaded, to rely upon, to trust. It carries the same signification as the word faith. The English version here says, whosoever believeth in him. But in the Greek, the word in there is the word is. And it means into. In to. And commenting upon the use of that word is in relation to the word believeth here, Bullinger says it implies direction towards the object of faith. He says it means to give oneself up to. So you see, here's a belief. Here's a trust, a reliance, a conviction that draws a person closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's continually drawing that person into Him. And so, and we we know from the uh, writings of Paul in Galatians that he says, "As many of has been baptized into Christ have put on Christ." Well, you see that belief there, that faith, that receiving that acceptance of that word in such a way that it's going to draw us into Christ and constantly be drawing us into closer of him. That's the belief he speaks of that will save a person from perishing but gain him eternal life. You see it starts with the gentle from above. The word entering into a person's mind. You see, but then there's such trust and reliance and conviction in that word received that the person is drawn closer and closer into the Lord Jesus Christ until he finishes up a man like the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the principle of God manifestation. That's the thing that can save a person from perishing and gain them eternal life. The natural man is destined to die. But that new man begotten by the word that abideth forever can prepare a person for eternal life you see the Jew not only did he think that the Messiah was going to live forever he thought that he was going to gain salvation by works of law but you see that verse 15 cuts right across in fact, the very episode in Numbers chapter 21 cut right against that principle because the principle of salvation by works is that I'm going to gain salvation by something that I do. You see, as Paul points out in Galatians, if you're going to have salvation by works, you've got no need for Christ. No need for a saviour because you either stand or fall by your own personal achievements. You see, we're in that is that principle of, as Brother Robert says, bringing people to their knees, breaking the stout heart, breaking that waywardness and so on and so forth. There's no principle of, of, of humiliation in that. In, other, in fact, it works to the opposite. Because if a person got into the kingdom of God by works of law, they'd have plenty to boast about when they got there. Because they could say, I am here because I was not like other men. I paid tithes. I did this, like the Pharisee of Luke 18. But see, that's not the principle of on which Yahweh works at all. That wasn't the principle of Numbers 21. There was the breaking of that stout heart. There was the bringing of those people to their knees. There was the turning of those people to look to God for help in a situation in which they were helpless. And Yahweh graciously provided an answer on the principle of them believing and having faith in the, in the um, things that he provided and thus it is with the Lord Jesus Christ those who are prepared to turn to him to be drawn closer and closer to him by the power of Yahweh's word they are the ones who are being fitted for eternal life and they are the ones who will not perish and so the principle of course as we know so well it's not the principle of salvation by works its salvation upon the principle of faith the very things that were taught back in the covenant to Abraham and so forth and so in verses 16 to 21 we believe the theme of rebirth continues on we read in verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever Jew, Gentile that is not who it was. Whosoever believeth into him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, he's showing here that God manifestation starts with the love of God. God loved the world and gave his Son. Romans 8 verse five, first 1 John 4, 9 and 10 are quotations relevant to the point. It all starts with the love of God and not with human ability or human achievement. And it's accomplished in a person's life by faith, by belief into the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord demolishes the principle of salvation by works. He's shown the need for the Messiah to die. He's shown the need for the flesh to be put to death in those who identify with him. He's shown that salvation is by faith and not by works of law. In verse 17 he touches another point point which the Jews did not understand. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn or the word means to judge the world but that the world through him might be saved. The Jews believed that the Messiah was coming to judge the world there and then. They were expecting to see Israel elevated and the Gentiles put down. The Lord explained that that wasn't the purpose of his coming at that time at all. He was coming to save people. And that he might save people first, he must be lifted up as that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. He first had to die as a sacrifice. That he might draw people under him, that by belief in the word they might be drawn close to him and made like him. And so he points out there in verse 17 that his purpose at that time wasn't to judge the world. He will judge the world in the future. That very word there ended condemn, which he used quite a lot to judge, used in Acts 17 speaking of the time when God will judge the world in righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used in the Apocalypse of Christ and the Saints judging the great horse and so forth. So Lord will judge the world in the future but first he had to come to save the world to save as many as would believe. And so first he had to come to be offered as a sacrifice. Remember in verse 18 he says He that believeth on him is not condemned or judged But he that believeth not is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, back in the Garden of Eden the sentence was pronounced that sinful flesh had to be put to death. Back in verses 15 and 16 the Lord had established that there are two destinies. You either perish or believe into the Lord Jesus Christ that you might have everlasting life. You see, if the Lord is rejected, then the destiny is sure and certain that that person will perish. Hence, you see, the absolute vital need for that rebirth. We're destined to perish. We're judged and condemned to death if we stand. Thus, that, that, the vital need for that rebirth and the development of that new man that's pleasing and acceptable to God. That man that's built and developed and shaped by the influence from heaven. And without that, then then there's the, the person is judged already because they have not received the name of the only begotten Son of God. In verses 19 uh, and 20, he says, "This is the condemnation, or the judgment, that the light is come into the world." And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You know, light had particularly been shone in the Jewish world through the oracles of God, the law of Moses and so forth. But then the Lord Jesus Christ as the light of the world was manifested in their midst. But you know that those people hated that light They hated it, they rejected it and they tried to extinguish it. Why? Because they loved darkness more than that light. Because their deeds were evil. Then in verse 20 he says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And the word doeth there Means to practice. Everyone that practices evil. And the word evil there is a different word to what we find in verse 19. It's a word mm-hmm. full of. It means, according to Bullinger, worthless. Good for nothing things. See, everyone that practices worthless, good for nothing things hateth light. Neither will he come to the light unless his deeds should be reproved or the uh, margin says discovered unless his deeds should be reproved or discovered uh, and so uh, it, actually the word means put to shame so when his deeds are discovered he's put to shame and so such a person slinks away from the light they don't want to come out into, the, into that light because they don't want their deeds and their ways to be revealed And such it was with the majority in Israel when the light of the world walked in their midst. They hated that light because it showed them up for what they were. It revealed them for what they were. And the Lord is showing that's because their deeds are evil. That's because they're practising worthless, profitless, useless things. And they don't like that being revealed and exposed. But you see verse 20 he says, But he that doeth truth, cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. And there you see in verse 20 and verse 21 we have once more the contrast between the old man and the new man. The old man of the flesh hates the light of God's truth because it reveals it to what it is. It restricts its ways. It it, it, uh, condemns it to death so it shrinks back from that light. But, you see, the new man, begotten by the word of truth, the new man is not afraid of that light. The new man confidently comes out into that light because he doesn't mind his deeds being revealed. Because, you see, the new man, in the true sense of the word, everything that he does has its origin in God. He's begotten from above. He's governed by the word from above. And everything that he's doing, his whole way of life, has its origin from above. His deeds are wrought in God. Mentally and morally, his life is governed by that influence from heaven. His life and works are wrought in God. And he doesn't mind that life. You know, brethren and sisters, very soon we are going to be taken into the full blaze of that divine light and have our lives thoroughly scrutinised in the full blaze of that light. Will we be like those who want to slink away? Want to slink out of that light? Because, you see, because our lives really and truly have been revolving around the old man of the flesh, giving the old man of the flesh the things he wants and the things he likes? Are we going to feel shame when that is revealed and we're brought into this to be scrutinised by the true light of God's word manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will we be able to go with confidence to that day, knowing that when we're brought out into the light it will be revealed that all that we've done, all that we've thought and said, All our purposes and motives in life have had their origin in heaven. In Yahweh's word that he's given unto us. Indeed, brethren and sisters, the days are getting very short. The signs of the times tell us that very soon we must be put stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. May we wisely use the few domes that may remain.